Well, as I mentioned, we are in the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, beginning in verse 28. And I'm sure everyone here uh, knows that every book of the Bible is valuable. I'm sure you know that and believe that, and you know uh, uh, from 2 Timothy that all Scripture and every book of the Bible is part of that all Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful promise. And we know that applies to the book of Proverbs, but... If we're honest, we've probably all found it challenging to read the book of Proverbs and study the book of Proverbs and wade through it because it's not written in the style of the other books of the Bible. It's not like Romans where there is a logical theme that you can just just follow through and you have the subpoints and the subpoints to the subpoints. Or it's not like books like the Gospels, which are relating historical accounts that we find easy to read. Instead, it's very different. And uh, it uh, sometimes um, people become kind of frustrated. If you're like me, uh, I find it difficult to remember the Proverbs. Uh, I, I read them and I enjoy them, but... Uh, there's just so many of them, it's, it, I find that a little difficult. But anyway, Monday I was reading a blog that I enjoy, and I would commend it to you, chalies.com, C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S.com. Tim Challies, I've come to really admire. He writes a wonderful blog just about every day he'll have something on it that he's written. And he's a good thinker, a biblical thinker. But I also really like he, he every day uh, has links to various articles and things that he has found that are edifying. And uh, I, I have been blessed by so many things. Well, Monday, uh, he had a link to someone else's blog about Proverbs. And, of course, when I saw what the subject was, I perked up because I'm teaching Proverbs. And... Um, I, I really, really appreciated what this writer wrote. First of all, he mentions the introduction to the book of Proverbs, which is chapters 1 through 9, which we studied, and, and it gives the value of God's wisdom. But then wisdom uh, is, is then talked about in the rest of the book uh, from chapter 10 to the end with uh, giving us just one verse after another of gems of riches. And uh, he, he made a good analogy. In, in chapter 1, in the introduction, uh, we find that wisdom has built her house. Wisdom is personified as a virtuous woman, and she has built a house, and she has invited us to the feast. And uh, he draws the analogy there of the feast is all these individual proverbs in starting in chapter 10, and that they are like a buffet. And you go to a buffet, and uh, there's just this wide array of dishes, of foods there. But a good buffet has what a great variety. It's not all chicken dishes. 
it's not all salads, but it's got different kinds of meat dishes and different vegetables and different casseroles and different, uh, you name it, as such a variety. And, and he pointed out, you know, that the heart of the book of Proverbs is kind of like that. It's, it's a buffet. Uh, and, and with a food buffet, you know, the foods really aren't connected together with some theme or something. And it's the same way with the book of Proverbs. And so we we go through the buffet and we take all these different dishes there. And then he points out, you know, the dishes, of course, are different. Uh, the verses we're going to look at tonight, every one of those verses is very different from the others. It's the different themes and so on. And uh, he drew the analogy that you never have a day when you think all day and only have to deal with one subject. What kind of day would it be if the only thing you had to deal with all day was money? Or the only thing you had to deal with all day to think about or anything was discipline? Or the only thing you had to think about all day was um, friendships? Friendship's wonderful, but there's other things that come into play. And so the book of Proverbs, all these Proverbs are kind of like that. It's kind of like the day. We don't have just a whole day of one subject. It's all these different subjects. And so I thought that that was a good analogy of what we're doing uh, in the in the book of Proverbs. And so we're studying many parts available to us in this buffet. And so tonight we're in Proverbs 14, and let's stand in honor of God's word as I read Proverbs 14, verses 28 through 34. Verse 28, in a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people a prince is ruined. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, as we've been going through all these different parts of the buffet, we have had a title for each one, and they are adapted from a book called The Wisdom of Proverbs by Bob Beasley. I don't want to take credit for them, but a number of them I have adapted, changed his wording some. But the first one tonight is in verse 28. Leaders... Know the source of your glory. Look at verse 28. In a multitude of people is the glory of a king. The glory of a king, or as we're going to see, this would apply to any leader, not just a political leader, not just a king and so on. The glory of a king or any leader does not lie in the outward trappings like titles and clothes and palaces, and ceremonies, and servants, or in the case of the United States President, uh, Air Force One, 
or if you walk into a room and a band plays hail to the chief you know those are some perks that go along with being president of the United States and then living in the White House but the glory of a king is not in those outward trappings the psalm the, the proverb says that kings and leaders are nothing without the people that they are leading. And that's an important point of this proverb. David had the right attitude. Turn over to First Chronicles 14. And of course, David was a king and uh, a very, very respected king of Israel. Well, in, in First Chronicles chapter 14, verse 2, there's an interesting verse about David in First Chronicles 14.2. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that his kingdom was highly exalted, look at this, for the sake of his people Israel. He didn't make the mistake of thinking the kingdom was exalted for his sake, but for the sake of the people, uh, the people Israel. Um, I was thinking of that attitude, and it's commended here. And I thought of American leaders, and um, I have had, ever since I was a kid, an interest which really became a hobby in, uh, in learning about and studying the lives of the presidents of the United States. Now, I know that's kind of strange, but that's just an interest I've always had. So... I read that and studied that, and I thought, well, have we had leaders like that in America? And yes, we have, I really believe. For instance, George Washington. I think George Washington uh, is a good example of that. I was thinking of, of modern times, and I don't want to get too modern, because then we all come in with our political prejudices, but I, I was thinking about President Eisenhower, and then I realized, Terry and I, Will be, are the only ones here who remember President Eisenhower to him. To the rest of he was just a man in history. But uh, I think he was a president who exhibited this and uh, was a blessing to the country. And so, and, and there have been others, praise God. So rulers who, re, who realize this govern wisely according to God in the book of Proverbs. And they, they, they rule and, and, and lead wisely and justly. And as a result, people desire to stay in the land. And, and you look at the opposite. Ever since uh, the 1960s, think of all of the Cubans that have longed to leave Cuba and have wrong to the United States. All the people in Venezuela in more recent times who had fled to the United States. And then back during the Cold War, the whole situation with East Germany and the Berlin Wall. Um, most of you didn't live through that, but that was really something to, to see when, when they built that wall. And that there were people on the other side of that wall who so longed to get out of that country that they would even take the risk of being shot as they were climbing over that wall to get to freedom. 
the leaders of East Germany did not follow this by any, any means. So a, need, a leader needs to realize that his strength, though, isn't because of his numbers. That's not what he's saying. Uh, turn over to Deuteronomy 7 and 8. This is something, kind of the other side of it, that, that uh, countries and leaders need to be concerned about, that they not uh, fall into this trap. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8 it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And of course, he's talking to people Israel. But it, has, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he uh, swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of a mighty, uh, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then in Psalm 33, an important uh, principle here in the book of Psalms 33, Psalm 33 and verses 16 and 17, the king is not saved by his great army. A great army would be big in numbers. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, but it is a great might. But by its great might, it cannot rescue. So just some reminders in Scripture that it's not that numbers are, are, are your glory, but your, your glory is with the people, not the numbers, uh, but the people. But back here in Proverbs 14, look at the next part of the proverb in verse 28. But without people, a prince, so that, of course, is a, is a ruler, a prince is ruined. So with this proverb, Solomon is speaking to his son, who is a prince, who is going to be the king uh, after Solomon dies. And Solomon is speaking to his son, the future kingdom, to be a wise and competent ruler who the people will devote themselves to. Unfortunately, his son, Rehoboam, forgot that. And you can read about that in uh, Chronicles. And for his son not to be a fool who people will try to flee from. So this proverb uh, should prompt us to pray for our country. We're told in Scripture to pray for our leaders. And we are to pray for our country. We are to pray for our leaders and pray that they would be godly. Pray that they would be like what this says in this verse, instead of in it for themselves and glorying and all the perks that come uh, with their office. But there's an application here also for all of us, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a military officer, a manager at work, uh, a husband, a father, don't get enamored by the titles, but be a servant leader. And, of course, the great example of the servant leader is our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And then the great passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, that describes Jesus Christ, eternal Son of God, and with the glory of God. And he humbled himself.
and took the form of a servant and came. And boy, did he put that on display in the upper room the night before he went to the cross. When there was no servant there to wash the feet of the disciples, which was part of normal hospitality there. And he got a towel and a basin, and he took the place of a servant and washed their feet. Uh, A tremendous example of a servant leader. And so if you are a leader of someone or a group of people, work, at home, wherever, this is a great reminder that we are to be servant leaders. The second of the Proverbs tonight is in verse 29. Be patient, for your God is sovereign. Very different subject that we now have in the buffet. Look at verse 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. The the idea of being slow to anger is the idea of being patient in the midst of hard circumstances. And, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, which is described in Galatians chapter 5, which uh, is to be in the life of the believer because we have the Holy Spirit within us. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit uh, is, is seen in this being patient in the midst of hard circumstances. Uh, the fruits uh, of, the, of the Spirit are in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. In particular, the, the fruit of patience is mentioned and the fruit of self-control are, are mentioned. And then turn to Proverbs 29, 11. Another, another dish from the buffet, Proverbs 29, verse 11. Well, this is a strong one. A fool, that word is not used lightly in Proverbs. A fool gives full vent to his spirit. A fool is the one who lets anger take over in his life. But a wise man or woman quietly holds it back. That's the fruit of self-control, which is so important for the believer. And, And then we should never forget that God has given every Christian the power to control anger. Uh, that's uh, because we have the Holy Spirit. So never let Satan deceive you into thinking, well, I just can't help it. That's how I'm made. That's how the circumstances are. If you're a believer, you have available to you the power to control uh, your anger. Uh, Paul said, by the way, that being slow to anger is one of the actions of love. Remember 1 Corinthians 13? which is that great uh, chapter describing the attributes of of love that we are to have. And in verse 4, it says love is patient. In verse 5, it says love is not irritable. In verse 7, it says love endures all things. All of these are related to being slow uh, to anger. Satan loves to have us dwell on some personal slight until what started as a very small annoyance is built into an enormous offense, and we blow up with anger. Anger. Satan loves that. But Ephesians, think about what Ephesians says. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. As we get angry, we're giving the opportunity for the devil, for his work. And uh, that we wouldn't let the day end with staying in that anger. Do not let the sun go down upon your anger. But he says here in this proverb, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. What does he understand? He or she understands that God is sovereign and God is in control. When when you're tempted to be anger, angry about hard circumstances, you are forgetting that God is in control. God is at work in this. And uh, that becomes, when you, when you stop and think about that, becomes the antidote for anger. If God is in control, he is using this. This is not being wasted by God, this hard circumstance that I'm getting angry about. And I need to trust him. Um, he understands that every time we are controlled by anger, that we are sinning. And he continues on. He says, but he who has a hasty temper. Now, that hasty temper, of course, is the other side of the coin, the opposite from the first line, which is to be slow of anger. The person who is not slow of anger, but has this uh, hasty, um, this hasty temper. This person exalts folly. This person is involved with, to be blunt, stupidity. That's the in the idea of folly. Instead of wisdom and godliness, which is what we want. This is engaging in stupidity. And remember that anger it exalts folly because anger comes from selfishness, which is the opposite of love. And as a believer, we are to be marked by love. So there's a conclusion I think would like to come to with this proverb, and that is that the New Testament echoes this proverb in the book of James chapter 1, verse 19, the second part through verse 20, James 19b through 20, where James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak. Where have you seen that before? In our person Proverbs. Slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So it's an Old Testament principle, and the Holy Spirit repeated it in the New Testament. Uh, then we continue to the next proverb, which is in verse 30. Seek a healthy, selfless heart. Or could have said a healthy, unselfish heart, perhaps might be a better way to put it. But verse 30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. Literally, in Hebrew, that word tranquil is healthy, a healthy heart. And of course, in our culture, we, we uh, uh, have a lot of talk about a healthy heart. If you have a, a suspicion that your heart is not healthy, you become alarmed. Uh, you don't want to get an, a heart attack and, and so on. And so you see the doctor and 
try to take steps to uh, to co correct that unhealthy heart. Well, uh, here he's talking about uh, the tranquil, uh, as as he puts it, heart. Now, here heart here is not talking about the organ inside that pumps, but it's talking about the soul, the immaterial part of us, and uh, the healthy heart is going to, uh, as, as he says here, gives life to the flesh. So what's the key, first of all, to having a healthy heart in the sense of what he's going to deal with here? Well, it's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I think those are good verses to review. I know that uh, you have heard them, read them, know them, may have memorized them, but we need to re review them once in a while. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So don't worry. Instead, bring your prayer requests to God with thanksgiving. And he has a promise in verse 7. And the peace of God, that's part of the healthy heart. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard. That's what we want. Something that will guard our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. That's a tremendous promise. And then along with it goes Isaiah 26 verse 3, thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. You, you know the Hebrew word shalom. Um, in, in Hebrew, that verse says, you will keep him in shalom, shalom. When the word is repeated, it means perfect, perfect peace. Well, then um, he, he uh, is, is talking about this life to the flesh, this, this peace from the Lord, not being filled with anxiety, brings health to our heart, but also is a big factor in having a healthy body. I googled um, physical, some, I forget the exact wording, but something like physical effects or results of anxiety. And listen to the list I came up with. Anger and anxiety and envy keep the mind in turmoil and produce these medical problems. Headaches. Now, that's not saying all headaches come from that, but there, there are many headaches that come from it. Digestion problems, abdominal pain, insomnia, not being able to sleep, depression, high blood pressure, skin problems. And I put with that, this wasn't in the list I saw on the internet, but I added to it because of experience with a family member, hair loss. Now, for the guys, hair loss doesn't mean you're worrying. There's other reasons for that, but... In, in our family, we had a family member, a, a, a woman, who uh, was losing hair, her hair. For a woman, that is a terrible, terrible thing. A woman's glory is in her hair. And the doctor was honest with her. I think it's because you're worrying. And she was a worrier. And it caused her to lose some hair. Uh, heart attacks and strokes. I mean, what a list that is.
of the maladies of the flesh that come as a result of anxiety. He says the healthy heart will produce a healthy body. So he goes on and uh, he says, but envy, so here's the other side of it, um, envy is um, um, makes the bones rot. Bones are often used in, pro in Proverbs to describe your core physical condition, just like it's kind of the core of your body. It's the frame that everything hangs on. And uh, so he says, in other words, this is another poetic way of saying envy is going to do destructive work, not just to you spiritually and, and emotionally, but in your body as well. So seek us a healthy, selfless heart. The fourth proverb tonight is verse 31. Glorify God by having mercy on the poor. Look at verse 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man. Oppress means to mistreat, to cheat. And here he's talking about a poor man. The true of poor woman as well. Uh, some proverbs... Uh, are translated in our English translations with the word poor, but uh, they are translating a Hebrew word that refers to someone who's poor because they're lazy. Uh, that's not the kind of poor person he's talking about here. This Hebrew word for poor refers to people who are poor because of events beyond their control. They lost their job. Uh, the country's going through a depression. Uh, all, all kinds of, of things beyond their control that would cause them to be poor. And uh, the proverb says that uh, whoever oppresses such a person insults not just them, but their maker, who of course is God. And God has made both the rich and the poor for his purposes. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 2, interesting a couple of verses on that. First Samuel chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. First Samuel 2, 7 and 8. Oh, help was in the right book. That didn't mean to be in Ruth. First Samuel 2, 7 and 8. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord, and on them he has set the world. But that, the key for our purposes, verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. God has his purposes. And uh, for you to, to oppress them, to, to do harm to them, is an offense not just to them, but to their creator, who is the Lord uh, himself. And uh, the Bible often speaks of God's special concern uh, for the poor. And Jesus talked about what one does uh, to the person in need, one does to God. And that's in the book of, of Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 40. And uh, you remember that passage where uh, he he talks about people saying, but uh, we, we did this and helped this person and so on. And Jesus said, 
if you help one of these people in need, you have done it unto me. That's an important principle uh, to remember. And uh, what one does to the person in need, one does to the Lord. And then we should remember the strong words that are in James. Turn over to the book of James, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. James 2, 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Uh, and then he goes on, So also faith by itself, it does not, if it does not have works, is dead. Well, back in our proverb, in verse 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy, he, he knows this poor person is, is, is worthy because he is uh, created by God, made in the image of God. And um, he accepts him or her instead of kind of saying, oh, you're, you're not worthy of anything. And he does acts of kindness to him or her. That's this person who is generous. And he says, but he who is generous to the needy. We have a good example, by the way, in the book of Acts, of a, of a woman who was generous to the needy. Her name was Dorcas, remember, uh, in, in the book of Acts chapter 9. And uh, she became ill and she died. And there were all of these people that were just crying when she died and they were showing Peter here are all the different pieces of clothing that she made by hand to give to people she was a wonderful person and uh, then Peter raised her from the dead and uh, that was a sign of the fact that Peter was an apostle and was uh, preaching the gospel done before the completion of the New Testament but she was known for her kindness to the poor, and as, as an example to all the rest of us. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. I would love it if the word him were capitalized in your Bible. Uh, one negative thing I have to say about the ESV, they do not capitalize the pronouns that refer to God. Um, and they had their reasons because of English rules of grammar and so on. But I wish they'd done that. Other translations do that. So then we would know immediately that this hymn is referring to God. It's not referring to the needy. But this is referring uh, to God himself. And uh, the person who is generous to the needy honors God. Being generous to the needy is part of our worship of God. Isn't that a tremendous statement? Honoring to God, part of our worship to God. And we honor God as the sovereign one. And then also we become his instruments in providing for these who are in need. Well, that brings us to the fifth of these Proverbs. And that's in verse 32. Number five, don't live in fear of death but face death with trust in the Lord. Look at verse 32. The wicked 
is overthrown. That word overthrown means to cause someone to come to ruin. It has the idea of being knocked down. Uh, the wicked has a serious fall, is what this is saying. It's a calamity. And this is referring to the calamity that's the calamity of all calamities, and that is eternal judgment in hell. And so the, the, the wicked is overthrown. The wicked faces the calamity of eternal punishment, eternal judgment. And it's a, it's a, it's a terrible, terrible thing. Charles Bridges, who wrote a classic commentary on Proverbs, Back in the 1800s, I, I liked a statement he wrote with this proverb. He, that is the wicked, is dragged out of life like a criminal to execution. So picture someone on death row and the day comes for their execution and they're struggling, but the uh, jailer drags them out to their execution, torn away from whatever heaven he has on earth. He doesn't have real heaven, but he has what he might think is some kind of heaven on earth. With no, that's, here's the, the worst problem, with no joyous heaven beyond. With all his heart, he wants to stay, but he can't. He can't live, and he doesn't dare to die. What a, what a, what a well-put statement by, Char by Charles Bridges. So, our proverb says that the wicked is overthrown through his over for, through his evil doing. Evil deal doing is sinful behavior, sin, sinful behavior towards others and towards himself. And it's a reminder: no one will ever get away from sin. This evil doer probably, as he's going through life, he thinks, "Oh, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds, and I'm sure I will get by okay." But no one gets away with sin. The wicked one, the sinner, will discover that his sin has consequences. It's like the second part of Romans 6.23 uh, says that, the, the, that the, the wages of sin is death. Uh, I, I said the second part, I meant the first part. Uh, that the wages of sin is death. Now that verse... Romans 6.23 has a second part that begins with the word but. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And that's pictured here in the next part of our proverb with the word but. But the righteous, and the righteous here, of course, is a term for a believer, a Christian. It's not a person who's righteous with his own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ that has been given to him. Christ bore his sin on the cross and gave him his, that is Christ, righteousness. What a difference for this person than for the wicked. And you could, you could think of it this way, thinking back of Charles Bridges' statement, the body for the believer isn't torn away. Remember Bridges talking about the guy in the in the prison, and he's being torn away uh, to go to his execution. When it comes time for us to die, we're not torn away, but instead, like Second Peter chapter one verse fourteen, our body is put off. That's a whole different idea than it being torn away. It's uh, hey, I don't need the body anymore. Um, 
uh, some of us might think it's good, you know, be kind of good riddance to the body. And uh, we're going to be with the Lord and something far better. Uh, it's like 2 Corinthians 5 8, where Paul said, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That's nothing to dread. That's something that fills us with confidence, with hope, with joy. Or like David, David had that. In Psalm 23, he talks about, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And then he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a wonderful hope that the believer has. And then there's Paul. Turn to those familiar verses from Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. 2 Timothy 4, remember 2 Timothy is written, uh, the last inspired uh, book that Paul wrote just before he was executed. 2 Timothy 4, 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Two good pictures there for death, being poured out as a drink offering. In the Old Testament, there were many sacrifices that at the end of the sacrifice, they had a drink offering. This liquid was poured out at the end of the sacrifice. What's Paul's sacrifice been? Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. Paul's body has been a living sacrifice. And he says, this is the last part of my living sacrifice. I'm going to die. I'm going to leave the body. I'm going to go to be with the Lord. And so he calls it, um, I'm poured, being poured out of a drink offering, the time of my departure, going from one place to some place that's far better. And um, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. So is death something to fear? If you're a non-believer, it sure is. But for the believer, no. Um, continuing uh, with this proverb, but it makes itself known, oh, excuse me, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. Finds refuge. Instead of terror, the believer finds refuge. What a hope we have. Job 19.26, Job's in the midst of that suffering that he went through. And he says, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh is a resurrected body, I shall see God. Was he dreading that? No, it was a joyous hope. And uh, that verse in, in Job is kind of like a doctrinal seed in the ground that blooms in the New Testament. Or there's another term for that, progressive revelation. 
You have that so much with the Old Testament. There'll be a little seed like this. But it, the word, the revelation for God progresses as we go through and get to the New Testament. And it progresses and we see it in full bloom. And in full bloom, we see Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Uh, Philippians 1.23, I am hard-pressed in between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And 2 Corinthians 5.8, And we would rather be away from the Lord and at home with the Lord. What a hope. My heart goes out to non-believers who face death and they don't have that hope. And uh, years ago, Terry and I uh, knew quite well a woman who worked for many years as a caretaker to very sick people. And she often would talk about the non-believers that she saw die. And she talked about, you know, it wasn't a pretty picture. The, the terror that they, you could see it in their faces in some cases. But how different for the believer the faces death with hope, with confidence, even with joy. I think I've mentioned it before. My grandmother, who I dearly loved, lived to her 90s, and I remember her saying, I wonder what it will be like to wake up in heaven and see Jesus. And she said it with a smile on her face. That's the hope and expectation of a believer. Well, we'll stop there tonight and pick up with the next one the next time. But uh, again, some pieces from some dishes from the buffet in the book of Proverbs that show us so many things about living for the Lord. Let's just kind of recap them. Number one, are you enamored by the titles that you have? Mother, father, teacher, manager, elder, deacon, etc. Learn to be a servant leader following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, do you get impatient and angry about circumstances in your life, illness, someone mistreating you, other drivers on the road? Remind yourself that God is in control of all these things, and he's using these. He has a purpose for them in your life. Number three, is your heart unhealthy because it is filled with anxiety? Apply Philippians 4. 6 and 7, and Isaiah 26, 3. Number four, have you been generous to people in need? Pray that you will be alert to opportunities that God puts in your life to be more generous and in doing that to honor him. And lastly, if you're a Christian, does the thought of your future death fill you with fear or with peace? Think of the song, It Is Well With My Soul. When peace like a river, you know, the, the story of that man after the death of his wife and daughters in a terrible accident at sea. 
and he was able to write that song, It Is Well With My Soul, and to have hope of spending time in eternity. So, if it is fear, spend time meditating on 2 Corinthians 5 8, Psalm 23, 4 and 6, Job 19, 26, and Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 and 23. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us to the banquet tonight. We've tasted these dishes from the buffet. And Father, we pray that you would apply them to our heart, that uh, as we go through the rest of this week, our minds would go back to these truths that you have given us, and that you would work in our heart, making us more like Christ. And we pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.